Chapter Twelve of Carpenter's Geographical Reader Asia by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Korea, the Hermit Nation. A short sail from Nagasaki brings us to Korea, or Chosen, as the country has been called since 1910, when it was made a part of the Japanese Empire. We land at Fusan and travel northward by railway to Seoul, the capital city. The country is very mountainous, with many streams, and we are told that it contains gold, silver, copper, and lead, and that in the north there are large deposits of coal. The soil seems to be fertile. We pass fields of rice, cotton, and tobacco, and find that wheat, barley, and millet are grown farther north. Fruits of many kinds are brought to the train, and we buy ripe red persimmons as big as the largest tomato and eat them with spoons. The climate is delightful, and we do not wonder that the people are proud of their country. On our way, we pass many villages of mud and stone huts, roofed with straw inhabited by farmers, and now and then go through a town made up of houses of much the same nature. There are white-clad figures at work in the fields, and stopping off at one of the towns, we find ourselves among some of the queerest people we shall see in our travels through Asia. They are not Chinese, and still they are yellow. They are not Japanese, although their eyes are like almonds in shape. They are taller than any of the Asiatics we have in America, and their faces are kinder and somewhat more stolid. They have cheekbones as high as those of an Indian, and their noses are almost as flat as a Negro's. They are stronger than the men we saw in Japan. Here comes one trotting along with a cartload of pottery tied to his back. During our travels through the mountainous parts of the interior, men of that kind will carry our trunks, weighing hundreds of pounds, for a few cents a day. They will fasten them to an easel-like framework of forked sticks which hangs from their shoulders, and will trot up the hills as though they were loaded with feathers. They are Korean porters, who, notwithstanding the railroads, still carry much of the freight. As we continue our travels, we find that Korea has many classes of people corresponding to those which were here before the Japanese took possession of the country at the close of the Russian-Japanese War, and introduced Western ways. For ages prior to that time, the nation was independent, being under a king, and the nobles, who lived in great luxury by taxing and oppressing the rest of the people. They strutted about in gorgeous silk gowns and spent their whole time in smoking and chatting, considering it beneath their dignity to do any manual labor. In addition to them, there were other classes who dressed in gowns of cotton and silk. These were government clerks, scholars, farmers, merchants, and laborers, each class of which had its own costume and ways. Even today most of the people wear gowns, and many of the men in the fields are clad in white cottons. Others have on full pantaloons tied in at the ankles and stockings of cloth so padded that they almost burst the low straw shoes which they wear. We see gowns of light green and rose pink, and some as blue as the sky. But queerest of all to our eyes is the headgear. Some of the men wear bowls of white straw as big as umbrellas, and others have their heads almost bare, save for the little hats of black horsehair which sit on the crown 
and are fastened by ribbons tied under the chin the horsehair hat is that of a gentleman and it is prized more highly than any other article of dress it is so light that it seldom weighs more than two ounces and according to its shape one may know the class of its owner indeed here every style of hat has its meaning observe that one of bright straw which is coming towards us it is as big as a parasol and seems to be walking off with the man who is half hidden beneath it that hat is worn by a mourner and for three years he can use no other kind he wishes to appear humble for he believes that the gods are angry with him in that they cause the death of his father for the same reason he is clad in that gown of light gray and holds a screen in front of his face to show his great grief if at the end of his mourning his mother should die he must mourn three years longer and during the time he will not dare to go to parties and he should not do business or marry but here come two men with no hats at all they part their hair in the middle and it hangs in long braids down their backs see how meek they look and how they slink along half ashamed they are korean bachelors and until they are married they will have no rights that any one is bound to respect according to the old custom married men only might have hats in korea and it was only they who had the right to put up their hair in a topknot on the crown of the head many unmarried men and boys still wear their hair down their backs they tie it with ribbons and look more like girls than boys we ask the guides to show us the women he tells us that korean ladies are seldom seen on the streets and that it is only lately that they have gone out at all except in closed carriages he points out however some queer-looking creatures who have green cloaks thrown over their heads which they hold tight in front of the faces with just a crack for the eyes these are women of the poorer classes many of whom turn their backs as we see them at work in the fields all these strange customs are changing and the koreans under the japanese have begun to adopt modern ways many of the town people now cut their hair short and the public schoolboys are required to do so the women are gradually coming out of their seclusion and we shall meet many girls on the streets going to school but we are now approaching the korean capital and can see its walls climbing the hills in the distance the city lies in a basin surrounded by mountains which in some places are as arid and ragged as the wildest peaks of the rockies and in others as green as the blue ridge or the adirondacks it is surrounded by a great wall as tall as a three-story house and so broad at the top that two automobiles abreast could easily be driven upon it the wall was built for the defense of the city about five hundred years ago but it is in good condition today the railroad station is outside the gates and before going in we climb to the top of the wall for a bird's-eye view of the city what a curious sight imagine three hundred thousand people living in one-story houses picture sixty thousand houses most of which are of stones and mud with roofs of straw thatch think of a city where the men are dressed in long gowns and where until recently the ladies were never seen on the streets and you have some idea of soul as we look out over the city it makes us think of a meadow filled with haycocks interspersed here and there with tiled barns and with groups of more imposing barns in a park 
in the center and also under the mountains at the back the haycocks are the huts of the poor the heavy-roofed barns are the homes of the rich and the great wooded enclosures surround the king's palaces the rich live in large yards back from the street and their houses are much like those of japan the rooms are separated by movable walls backed with oiled paper they are heated by flues which run under the floor the huts are built in the shape of a horseshoe with one heel of the shoe resting on the street and the other running back into the yard the doors of such houses are often so low that one must stoop to go in and at the foot of each door is a hole cut out for the dog every korean house has its own dog which knows a foreigner by his smell and barks at him as he goes through the street but let us take our field glasses and look again at the city below us as we examine it in detail we can see here and there many foreign buildings rising above the thatched huts some of these are government offices and others are schools in the center is a red brick structure devoted to the y m c a which was built for the koreans by an american and at one side of the town close to the wall is a section filled with japanese houses in which are many japanese stores other modern buildings are now going up the whole city is changing and the time may come when the thatched huts will disappear and buildings like those of japan take their places End of chapter 12